0: Section 12 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. New York, Monday, February 12th, 1906. Susie's biography continued. Some of the tricks played in Tom Sawyer. The broken sugar bowl. Skating on the Mississippi with Tom Nash, etc. From Susie's biography clara and i are sure that papa played the trick on grandma about the whipping that is related in the adventures of tom sawyer hand me that switch the switch hovered in the air the peril was desperate my look behind you aunt the old lady whirled around and snatched her skirts out of danger the lad fled on the instant scrambling up the high board fence and disappeared over it Susie and clara were quite right about that then Susie says and we know papa played hooky all the time and how readily would papa pretend to be dying so as not to have to go to school these revelations and exposures are searching but they are just if i am as transparent to other people as i am to susy i have wasted much effort in this life grandma couldn't make papa go to school so she let him go into a printing office to learn the trade he did so and gradually picked up enough education to enable him to do about as well as those who were more studious in early life it is noticeable that susy does not get overheated when she is complimenting me but maintains a proper judicial and biographical calm it is noticeable also and it is to her credit as a biographer that she distributes compliment and criticism with a fair and even hand. My mother had a good deal of trouble with me, but I think she enjoyed it. She had none at all with my brother Henry, who was two years younger than I, and I think that the unbroken monotony of his goodness and truthfulness and obedience would have been a burden to her but for the relief and variety which i furnished in the other direction i was a tonic i was valuable to her i never thought of it before but now i see it i never knew henry to do a vicious thing toward me or toward anyone else but he frequently did righteous ones, that cost me as heavily. It was his duty to report me when I needed reporting, and neglected to do it myself. And he was very faithful in discharging that duty. He is Sid in Tom Sawyer. But Sid was not Henry. Henry was a very much finer and better boy than ever Sid was. It was Henry who called my mother's attention to the fact that the thread with which she had sewed my collar together to keep me from going in swimming had changed color. My mother would not have discovered it but for that, and she was manifestly piqued when she recognized that that prominent bit of circumstantial evidence had escaped her sharp eye. That detail probably added a detail to my punishment. It is human. We generally visit our shortcomings on somebody else when there is a possible excuse for it. But no matter. I took it out of Henry. There is always compensation for such as are unjustly used. I often took it out of him, sometimes as an advance payment for something which I hadn't yet done. These were occasions when the opportunity was too strong a temptation, and I had to draw on the future. I did not need to copy this idea from my mother, and probably didn't. It is most likely that I invented it for myself still she wrought upon that principle upon occasion if the incident of the broken sugar bowl is in tom sawyer i don't remember whether it is or not that is an example of it henry never stole sugar he took it openly from the bowl his mother knew he wouldn't take sugar when she wasn't looking but she had her doubts about me not exactly doubts either she knew very well i would one day when she was not present henry took sugar from her prized and precious old english sugar bowl which was an heirloom in the family and he managed to break the bowl it was the first time i had ever had a chance to tell anything on him and i was inexpressibly glad I told him I was going to tell on him, but he was not disturbed. When my mother came in and saw the bowl lying on the floor in fragments, she was speechless for a minute. I allowed that silence to work. I judged it would increase the effect. I was waiting for her to ask, who did that, so that I could fetch out my news. But it was an error of calculation. When she got through with her silence, she didn't ask anything about it. She merely gave me a crack on the skull with her thimble that I felt all the way down to my heels. Then I broke out with my injured innocence, expecting to make her very sorry that she had punished the wrong one. I expected her to do something remorseful and pathetic. I told her that I was not the one, it was Henry. But there was no upheaval. She said without emotion, It's all right, it isn't any matter. You deserve it for something you've done that I didn't know about. And if you haven't done it, why, then you deserve it for something that you were going to do that I shan't hear about." There was a stairway outside the house which led up to the rear part of the second story. One day Henry was sent on an errand, and he took a tin bucket along. I knew he would have to ascend those stairs, so I went up and locked the door on the inside and came down into the garden which had been newly plowed and was rich in choice firm clods of black mold i gathered a generous equipment of these and ambushed him i waited till he had climbed the stairs and was near the landing and couldn't escape then i bombarded him with clods which he warded off with his tin bucket the best he could, but without much success, for I was a good marksman. The clods, smashing against the weather-boarding, fetched my mother out to see what was the matter, and I tried to explain that I was amusing Henry. Both of them were after me in a minute, but I knew the way over that high-board fence and escaped for that time after an hour or two when i ventured back there was no one around and i thought the incident was closed but it was not so henry was ambushing me with an unusually competent aim for him he landed a stone on the side of my head which raised a bump there which felt like the matterhorn I carried it to my mother straightway for sympathy, but she was not strongly moved. It seemed to be her idea that incidents like this would eventually reform me if I harvested enough of them. So the matter was only educational. I had had a sterner view of it than that before. Whenever my conduct was of such exaggerated impropriety that my mother's extemporary punishments were inadequate, she saved the matter up for Sunday, and made me go to church Sunday night, which was a penalty sometimes bearable, perhaps, but as a rule it was not, and I avoided it for the sake of my constitution. She would never believe that I had been to church until she had applied her test. She made me tell her what the text was. That was a simple matter, caused me no trouble. I didn't have to go to church to get a text. I selected one for myself. This worked very well until one time when my text and the one furnished by a neighbor who had been to church didn't tally. After that, my mother took other methods. I don't know what they were now. In those days men and boys wore rather long cloaks in the winter time. They were black and were lined with very bright and showy scotch plaids. One winter's night when I was starting to church to square a crime of some kind committed during the week, I hid my cloak near the gate and went off and played with the other boys until church was over. Then I returned home, but in the dark I put the cloak on wrong side out, entered the room, threw the cloak aside, and then stood the usual examination. I got along very well until the temperature of the church was mentioned. My mother said, It must have been impossible to keep warm there on such a night. I didn't see the art of that remark, and was foolish enough to explain that I wore my cloak all the time that I was in church. She asked if I kept it on from church home, too. I didn't see the bearing of that remark. I said that that was what I had done, and she said, You wore it with that red Scotch plaid outside and glaring. Didn't that attract any attention?" Of course, to continue such a dialogue would have been tedious and unprofitable, and I let it go and took the consequences. That was about 1849. Tom Nash was a boy of my own age the postmaster's son. The Mississippi was frozen across, and he and I went skating one night, probably without permission. I cannot see why we should go skating in the night unless without permission, for there could be no considerable amusement to be gotten out of skating at midnight, if nobody was going to object to it. About midnight, When we were more than half a mile out toward the Illinois shore, we heard some ominous rumbling and grinding and crashing going on between us and the home side of the river, and we knew what it meant. The river was breaking up. We started for home, pretty badly scared. We flew along at full speed whenever the moonlight sifted down between the clouds enabled us to tell which was ice and which was water. In the pauses we waited, started again whenever there was a good bridge of ice, paused again when we came to naked water, and waited in distress until a floating, vast cake should bridge that place. It took us an hour to make the trip, a trip which We made in a misery of apprehension all the time, but at last we arrived within a very brief distance of the shore. We waited again. There was another place that needed bridging. All about us the ice was plunging and grinding along and piling itself up in mountains on the shore, and the dangers were increasing, not diminishing. We grew very impatient to get to solid ground, so we started too early and went springing from cake to cake. Tom made a miscalculation and fell short. He got a bitter bath, but he was so close to shore that he only had to swim a stroke or two. Then his feet struck hard bottom, and he crawled out. I arrived a little later without accident. We had been in a drenching perspiration, and Tom's bath was a disaster for him. He took to his bed, sick, and had a procession of diseases. The closing one was scarlet fever, and he came out of it stone deaf. Within a year or two speech departed, of course. But some years later he was taught to talk after a fashion. One couldn't always make out what it was he was trying to say. Of course, he could not modulate his voice, since he couldn't hear himself talk. When he supposed he was talking low and confidentially, you could hear him in Illinois. Four years ago, 1902, I was invited by the University of Missouri to come out there and receive the honorary degree of L.L.D. I took that opportunity to spend a week in Hannibal, a city now, a village in my day. It had been fifty-five years since Tom Nash and I had had that adventure. When I was at the railway station, ready to leave Hannibal, There was a great crowd of citizens there i saw tom nash approaching me across a vacant space and i walked toward him for i recognized him at once he was old and white-headed but the boy of fifteen was still visible in him he came up to me made a trumpet of his hands at my ear nodded his head toward the citizens and said confidentially in a yell like a foghorn, Same damn fools, Sam. From Susie's Biography Papa was about twenty years old when he went on the Mississippi as a pilot. Just before he started on his trip, Grandma Clemens asked him to promise her on the Bible not to touch intoxicating liquors or swear and he said yes mother i will and he kept that promise seven years when grandma released him from it under the inspiring influence of that remark what a garden of forgotten reforms rises upon my sight End of section 12, New York, Monday, February 12th, 1906.